from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 7th. Today, advice for managing your money. What happens when people are too scared to seek medical care? And what we wear at home. So the coronavirus has created an economic crisis in addition to the health crisis. Tens of millions of people are unemployed and applying for unemployment insurance or their pay has been cut. Businesses have been shuttered. And so there's a lot of economic anxiety among so many people. Michelle Singletary is a nationally syndicated personal finance columnist. She spoke with our senior producer, Maggie Penman. You know, already so many people were on the financial edge and this virus just pushed them over. So I wanted to start by talking about stimulus checks. It seems like people have had such wildly different experiences with the stimulus checks that were part of the government's first big relief bill, the CARES Act. Some people got their money right away, direct deposit in their bank account, no problem. Other people are still waiting. So why is it so all over the place and where are things right now in terms of the stimulus checks? So initially, the first wave of payments that went out at the beginning of April were to people who filed either a 2018 return or 2019 return. And here's the key, got a refund during those years. So the IRS was able to quickly put money into those accounts where they had a refund because they had given the agency their deposit information for their banks, right? So then there was a lot of people who filed in 2018 and 2019 who owed the government a payment. Now, they've given the government either a check or allowed them to take money out of their bank account and say, like, well, wait a minute. Um, you have my banking information. Why don't I have a check? So the CARES Act, the way the IRS and the Treasury is interpreted, said that you had to authorize the government to go in and put that payment into your bank account. So they can cannot use the banking information that you supply to them to make a payment. I know people are like, okay, that's crazy, but that's how they interpreted the law. And so they were sort of in a second wave. And then they, the IRS was trying to negotiate with other agencies in the government, Social Security Administration, Veterans Department, to get payments to those folks because the systems don't talk to each other like that. And a lot of these systems are old. They haven't updated it. Now, I will have to say this. As much as we can criticize the government, we have to also remember that those folks are home too. They have stay-at-home orders and a lot of them are not working and, and the IRS is not at full force. And so people are like, well, where's my payment? Where's my payment? Well, those people are, you know, they're dealing with the COVID-19. They have maybe relatives who are sick or maybe they're sick themselves. And so to tell people who are struggling to be patient seems just insensitive. But the fact of the matter is the IRS really is trying to get as much money to people as quickly as possible. But that has created problems. And so here we are now where some people got money and some didn't. So for people who maybe haven't gotten that $1,200 yet, or maybe they have, but it 
didn't go far enough. What do you recommend people do? So if you have lost your job or you've been furloughed, you should triage your bills. And I use that word. Maybe some people are not familiar with it. But if you've ever been to an emergency room and it's full of people and you might have maybe jammed your thumb and you got there at 8 a.m. and someone walks in at 10 and they get served right away. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I've been in this room for two hours. But the doctors have to serve the most critical patients first. Apply that same system to your bills. So if your income has gone or been reduced, you have to pay the things that are the most critical. The roof over your head, food on the table, utilities, keeping up your car payment if you're still working so you can get to work. If your income has been reduced, same thing, pay the necessities. And I'm going to tell you, credit card debt is not a necessity right now. Now, I am a strong advocate for getting rid of debt and not having debt. So it pains me to say that. But honestly, if you have a limited amount of income, you should not be trying to pay no credit card debt. You should, however, contact your lender or your credit card issuer to say, I need a payment break because I don't have any income. And then what about for people who still have their jobs? but maybe are feeling some of that economic anxiety you were talking about. How should they be prioritizing paying off debt versus long-term saving goals or building up an emergency fund? So this is your chance to really build up that emergency fund if you don't already have one. So you need to take this time where maybe you don't have the same childcare costs. You don't have the same commuting costs. Build up that emergency fund. And we used to say that you need three to six months living expenses. But look at this. We're already three months into this crisis and people are running out of money. And so you need to err on that side of six to 12 months. And if you are a high income person, if you earn a lot of money, you ought to err on the side of having 12 to 18 months because it's going to take that long for you to replace that income. So that's one thing. Build up the emergency fund where you say, okay, I got a little bit of money in my emergency fund. Then pay off every debt that you can. I mean, get rid of every single credit card debt, get rid of the car loan, get rid of it, free your budget up for cash cushion. Because you may be thinking, well, I'm working, I'm okay. But if this thing goes on, as long as some may predict that you may find that you are out of work or furloughed, let's just look at the states. They are struggling right now because they're not bringing in taxable income because people aren't out eating and businesses are shut down. So they're not paying their business taxes. And there may be a point where federal and state workers are put on furlough. And even those who have strong businesses, maybe you work for a grocery store. But at some point, if we can't get control over this COVID-19 and we have to stay home, they're going to be saying, "Okay, you can only go to the grocery store every other day based on your birth date. We have no idea. And so that means some of those workers will be sent home. So you need to just not operate in fear, but you need to definitely have a cushion. I wanted to talk about unemployment benefits. I know there have been huge issues with that system being completely overwhelmed. What do you tell people who are out of work but can't get unemployment right now? I'm going to cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, no, no, I'm going to cry because I, I don't know what to tell them. 
other than to be patient. And that just sounds so, it, it just doesn't help them. But the systems were not built to handle this volume of folks who are unemployed. So they're crashing. They're long waits. People have said they were on for 36 hours straight trying to get into to the system to apply for unemployment. And then some states don't have the money to add the extra benefits that came under the CARES Act. Because when the CARES Act was passed, it opened up the door for people who were gig workers or self-employed to get unemployment benefits. But one, some states are like, you know what? We don't have the money for that. It's in the law, but we can't do that. And so all I can say is to keep trying to apply, whether you think you should get it or not, because a lot of self-employed are not quite sure, but apply anyway. And if you are denied, you should appeal because some of the systems have not updated enough to capture your information. So you might have been wrongly denied benefits. Apply for everything that you were eligible for just to see if you could get the money to help. I wanted to ask about retirement. And I imagine the advice is different depending on how close you are to retirement. But what are you advising? Should people be moving money around? Should they be thinking about taking some money out of the stock market? So the closer you are to retirement, hopefully you have already reallocated your investment portfolio so that it's as safe as it can be for what you need. So many uh, financial experts recommend that you have about a year to uh, two years worth of either savings or income to carry you through so that when the markets do what they do, which is go up and go down and sideways, and of course now it's just crazy, you won't have to tap into a portfolio that may be down right now. Um, so that's the one thing. So if you have a, a very diversified portfolio, you have figured out that you need X amount of money and you don't have to tap your uh, portfolio right now, then you don't do anything. And I know people are like, well, what in the world are you talking about? But this too shall pass. And so if you will realize those losses once you sell. Right now, it's a paper loss. It doesn't feel like that, but it's just a paper loss. But once you sell, you lock in those losses. So don't do anything, especially if you're younger. In fact, you want to buy more because now things are on sale. It's hard to say, don't be scared. And I try not to say that to people because it's ridiculous to tell people, oh, don't be scared. Don't be fearful because we are. This is this is a crazy time and we're worried about our health and we're worried about our money and we're worried about our neighbor's money. And so I'm not going to tell you don't be scared. I'm not even going to tell you don't panic, but don't act on that panic. That's when you find yourself into financial trouble because you're acting on fear. Feel what you need to feel because I can get there some days that I just go screaming in my office like, ah! But I don't act on that. I scream, but I don't act. And that is the mark of a smart investor to be able to be patient and know that this too shall pass. Michelle Singletary writes a nationally syndicated column on personal finance. It's called The Color of Money, and it comes out twice a week. If you have questions about anything related to personal finance right now, check out our show notes for a link to the Washington Post's guide to your money and the pandemic. You'll find FAQs on everything from retirement to stimulus checks to unemployment to small business loans. You can also find that link at postreports.com. <laughs> 
recent report from the American College of Emergency Physicians said that 29% of people were delaying or avoiding healthcare. That's a huge number. About a month ago, doctors were discouraging people from coming to the emergency room because they realized that there was a risk of contracting the coronavirus by coming in, or if you were infected, of passing it on to somebody else if you had mild symptoms. What they didn't realize is that people with inflamed appendixes, with infected gallbladders, with bile obstructions, and other urgent conditions like heart attacks and strokes would stop coming in. So this has kind of been the collateral damage, a sort of silent sub-epidemic that has come along of people avoiding care because they're so scared about the coronavirus. My name's Francis Seed Sellers, and I'm a reporter on the National Desk at The Post. What is the thinking of people who are choosing not to go to the ER or to the hospital in these circumstances? Like, do they, they think that they're going to get coronavirus just by walking through the front door? One fellow described to a doctor feeling as if the virus was crawling up the walls. We know it's a contagious disease. And if you think the emergency room is full of people with coronavirus and you'll be standing in line with other people who have coronavirus, or possibly, and think of this, standing in line with people who don't know they have the coronavirus but have broken their ankle, you are making yourself vulnerable to the disease by going into the emergency room. I also wonder how this is affecting parts of the medical system apart from the emergency room. When you're talking about more routine care or check-ins with doctors, how that might affect who ends up actually seeking help for problems that turn out to be more serious. Very little medicine is actually truly elective. We had this widespread guidelines given out in mid-March for hospitals not to perform elective surgeries. But if you think about it, something like a knee replacement can probably be put off for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, in some cases, possibly even a couple of years. But that won't be true in every case. There's always a pro and a con of a procedure. The few that are truly elective, nose jobs, plastic surgery of some kinds, sure, they can be put aside, but other things are generally on a scale. And what doctors are trying to do is to look at the risks and benefits as they would even before the era of COVID. But now with the era of COVID, when does something become more urgent? When should you bring somebody in? And to which hospital? Because sometimes one hospital is a greater risk of COVID than another. And I can imagine that part of this conversation is the fact that for some of these people, even if it's something that is relatively routine, that they think that they can delay for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, that when that small problem goes unaddressed, it can end up ballooning to something that actually is an emergency. Absolutely. And this is certainly true with infections. Um, many infections will take off. But also major things like heart attacks, there's been a 38% drop in people going in for what's called treatment for STEMIs. These are very acute heart attacks caused by the blockage of an artery, one of the arteries that supply oxygen to the heart. So this is a, generally an extremely painful condition, but people haven't been going in. Yeah, so I'm Tom Maddox. I'm a cardiologist and I'm at Washington University School of Medicine and BJC Healthcare. We um, initially, of course, moved a lot of our elective care, regular clinic visits and other things connected to cardiac care, uh, and postponed a lot of it. So a lot of that volume faded, and that's totally expected and fine. But what also happened that was unexpected is we saw a significant drop in the amount of acute care. So in the case of cardiovascular care, that would be heart attacks or strokes or other things that are just cardiovascular emergencies. And we obviously are not telling those folks to stay away. But 
And we've seen, similar to international countries, about a 40% drop in acute uh, heart attacks and strokes, which we think is largely people just still having them but not coming in for the care they need. The really concerning thing about heart attacks is untreated, in a significant number of people, it's fatal. So it literally could cost you your life. For those people who do survive it, though, um, it really can have significant and profound implications for your cardiac health. And in the case of a heart attack, untreated, it often can injure and in many cases kill significant parts of the heart muscle. And then you are left with a chronic condition of heart failure, which can be debilitating, chronic, incurable for the rest of your life. And we know that for people who can get into the hospital in a timely fashion, and then we can treat that heart attack with the sense of medicines that we have, you're often able to avoid that. One of the upshots of this has been a huge increase in the amount of telemedicine, which, of course, many doctors have been urging for a long time. So people can be seen at home. And now doctors are definitely saying, make sure you listen to your symptoms and make sure you get in touch with the doctor. At least have that conversation. Don't stay at home. Take the call to the doctor, show them the rash, talk to them about the symptoms. That's what they want us to do. We think the likelihood of transmission just by coming into clinic or getting your routine medical care is very low and you should rest easy that you're not inadvertently exposing yourself to that by taking care of yourself. And long-term, the healthier you are, um, the more likely you are to fight off any kind of infection anyway. So all of those, I think, are rationale for um, working with your care team and not being scared to get the care you need. This question of what qualifies as an emergency, it's also really interesting for people who need dental care or need to go to the dentist. Where are they left in this? So in mid-March, the American Dental Association announced, you know, pretty drastic measures. They recommended that dental practices across the country close down for almost everything except for things that they say count as emergencies. The tricky thing about that is what a dentist might count as an emergency isn't really the same thing as what somebody who's, you know, in pain or has a chipped tooth or needs their braces changed out feels is also an emergency. I'm Jessica Contrera. I'm a reporter on the local enterprise team at The Post. What actually qualifies as a dental emergency? Like, is a cavity an emergency or like a very painful cavity? Well, I guess the question is how much pain, right? What they're looking at is how much pain are you in? What is that pain a sign of? Do you maybe have an infection or do you maybe just have pain that could be treated from afar with some, you know, regular painkillers or that kind of thing? It's really tricky with teeth because anything a dentist does, the most basic thing is super high risk for dentists because they're right up in your mouth. They're right up in your airway. You can't wear a mask when you go to the dentist. And then if the dentist is going to do anything like drill on your teeth or do any kind of oral surgery, usually they're using tools that basically make all of the wetness in your mouth fly around. So it's a really precarious situation right now. It is a dangerous profession. And, you know, with our training, we are taught, it's called universal precautions, that every patient that we see can have every disease imaginable to you. So we have to be protected. 
there are dentists who, you know, are still doing emergency surgeries and are still making sure their their patients are looked after. One I talked to was Dr. Raha Yousafi. She runs a periodontal practice in D.C. What happens is when I handle these emergencies, I talk to the patients and I've either been using uh, FaceTime, I have them send me videos or take a picture of what their issue is. And I, of course, talk to them and we manage things. So if they are in any kind of pain, if there is any infection, if there is an abscess, definitely those are true emergencies. Other emergencies that we don't realize, for example, a patient that is undergoing Invisalign therapy, which is teeth movement, if they are not seen on a routine, regular basis, this may decrease the teeth movement. It may set their appointments and their time allowed for clinical therapy back. And so the detriments of not being seen regularly for that can put, you know, cause an emergency. So we've been seeing patients that have been ongoing with Invisalign therapy, patients that have been in temporary crowns, meaning if they've had a tooth that was in the process of being capped and just were not able to complete it, we've been having them come in. Now, other kind of, I'd like to say, elective procedures that we're not really doing right now is any kind of whitening. I'd like to say cosmetic work. We are not seeing patients for routine cleaning. So I can see the the calculus on the part of dentists in terms of the risk to them and the chances that they could get coronavirus from someone that they are doing a cleaning on, that that seems way more acute and way more serious than whatever the, the concerns are about, you know, a cavity that stays in somebody's mouth for too long. But I wonder what it's like for patients who are saying, well, you know, I might be in pain or even just dental care is ultimately an important part of medical care. And that if you leave things for too long, especially like an infection in your mouth, like that could have some serious issues for the rest of your health. Absolutely. I actually talked to a a patient who is a 77-year-old woman. Her name was Easter Brown, and she was about to get dentures. She had all of the teeth pulled from her mouth. She was about to get dentures and then her dentist shut down before this. So for the entire pandemic, she has been living with no teeth. To a dentist, technically not having dentures is not an emergency. And to Ms. Brown, you know, she understands she's making it work, but you can only eat so much soft food, right? It feels like this is a time where a lot of different professions, and it sounds like including dentists, are having to answer hard questions about how essential are they. And yes, what they do is something that could be forgone for a few weeks, but that ultimately having access to a dentist actually is pretty essential. The dentist I talked to said, if you have tooth pain, do not just let it go and assume that it can't be taken care of. They want you to call a dentist and explain what's going on. They might do a video visit with you. They might be able to tell you how to do something yourself from home, or they'll find a way for you to see someone in a way that's safe. I used to have a colleague who would say, pay now or pay later. And I find that to be so true with dental needs and healthcare needs. If you wait on something such as a small cavity and the next time you come in for your checkup exam, that cavity's grown. If they're telling you, you know, you got to go see the root canal specialist or you need a root canal on this tooth, you don't get that done, you're going to be in pain. Once the pain sets in, that abscess is growing, the disease in the tooth is growing. Your options at that point are you have to get the root canal. Sometimes it can be as worse as now you have to get the tooth extracted. 
So you went from a small filling to now to have the tooth extracted and spending time, money, and energy possibly for an implant, dentures, or just not having a tooth in place. I truly believe if you leave things to get worse, the management of the problem will be worse and the financial commitments of the problem will increase as well. What what do you think this says about public health messaging and about how people make decisions about what is and isn't safe? Public health messaging is an art in itself and very difficult. Individuals as well find risk assessment very difficult. And not only are they listening to public health messaging, but they're being flooded by uh, messages from the media, which of course often depict the most dire circumstances. And if you live in a town that hasn't been hard hit by the coronavirus, your actual risk may be very different from the ones you perceive from the messages you're getting from the media. So again, I think the answer has to be for individuals to get on the phone and talk through the real risks they face in their own local situation. Francis Steed Sellers and Jessica Contrera are reporters for The Post. And now, one more thing about what we wear when we're self-isolating at home. When we dress for the outside world, I think we are announcing who we are, what we hope we can accomplish in a given day, how we want people to perceive us. I'm Robin Gavon, and I'm the fashion critic for The Washington Post. The clothing that we wear continually defines us in really nuanced and subtle ways. And I think if we stop paying attention to that, it sort of allows our personality, our sense of who we are, to be slowly chipped away. And I don't think it necessarily means that we lose ourselves, but I do think we become a little less clear about who we are and where we fit into the broader community. It makes us feel a bit more lonely, a bit more disconnected, a bit more solitary. I don't think that working from home is necessarily all about just being more comfortable. I I think there's an aspect of it that is indulging your individuality and indulging yourself. But I think if we go too far and the indulgence sort of becomes blurred with a relinquishing of that public identity, when we finally do get to go out into the world again, I think it'll be more challenging because I'm not sure will have as clear a sense of how we fit into the larger picture. I think we'll have to sort of figure it out again. Robin Gavon is the fashion critic for The Post.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode, a story about mothers. I've given up to be a superwoman a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do everything. (laughs) In my household, everyone is equally busy. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.